Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Okay, I want to start by saying I have a very persistent, very terrible headache. Oh, no. And so I'm sorry if at any point I just go, oh. Oh. But um, I feel like I can I can do this. I'm not going to ruin it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> do you think it's because the air is so dry this time of year? Maybe you're a little bit dehydrated. Have you been drinking enough water? I've had plenty of water. Really? In okay. fact, I took a bath earlier, um, and the the whole bathroom slash bedroom area was so humid that there was water like dripping <laughs> down the windows so i think it's not a humidity issue i don't know what it is i may have cooked myself boiled yourself alive <laughs> <laughs> so i need some help but um but i'm fine it's fine it's gonna go fine um i did want to mention and remind uh the order of freaks that the voting is up for our mm. patreon uh, organization that we that we donate to. Yeah, every month we donate ten percent of all the support that we get from our patrons on uh, Patreon, and the order of freaks. Those patrons get to vote on who gets the money. And the organizations uh, up for vote this month are Girls in Tech, American Lung Association, National Breast Cancer Foundation, and AIDS United. So let's see who comes out the victor. It's like a cage match, only for nice things. <laughs> if you want to uh, to become part of the Order of Freaks, just go to Patreon and uh, look us up, The Box of Oddities. Also, it's, it's a good time because this Sunday, we're doing our monthly Sunday phone call with the Freak family. Yeah, that's always a blast. And so for an hour, we'll take your calls, and then that will become an episode for uh, our patrons next week. So many reasons to be a patron, not the least of which, ad-free episodes and a day early. And we love you for it. Oh, we do. We really, really do. It makes this possible in many ways. Have you heard of the curse of Flight 191? 
I don't think so. Wait, it's not the one with the ghost pilot, is it? No, I know what you're you're thinking of. That was the plane crash in the Everglades. Yes. I talked about that like 200 episodes ago. Yeah. yeah. No, Flight 191, this particular airline flight has crashed five <laughs> times. You laughed because you thought I was going to say air flight. For some reason, I think it's the area of the state of Maine I grew up in. We didn't have access to the outside world or uh, enough protein in many cases. And so for some reason, I, I refer to flights on airplanes as air flights. And she thinks it's hilarious. Okay, I'm sorry. It, there's, I'm sorry. Okay, so what happened with this airplane? Oh, this this <laughs> airplane flight, um, it crashed five times. No. But let me clarify. When I say flight 191, I'm not talking about the same airplane. Okay. I'm talking about a series of incidents that have uh, happened to airplanes that were numbered flight 191. In fact... The catastrophes are so numerous that many airlines have completely done away with the number 191 for flights. Kind of like a elevators won't stop on level 13. 13. That's exactly right. It's kind of a, I don't know, a superstitious thing now. These disasters go back to the early 1960s. Now, when I say there have been five crashes, those were just the fatal ones. Oh, no. Oh. Yeah. Oh. There are many other mishaps involving flights that are numbered 191. But out of the five fatal crashes, there was one that was particularly bad. In fact, it was the worst aircraft disaster in American history. American Airlines Flight 191 out of Chicago that uh, killed 273 people. Oh, my goodness. Back in 1979. In fact, it was Labor Day weekend. It was a sunny Friday afternoon uh, in May in, in 1979. Passengers for flight American Airlines 191 were boarding the plane for Los Angeles, and many of the passengers were noted literary figures from the Chicago area. They were headed out to the American Booksellers Association convention. Aww. They boarded the DC-10 around 2.30 p.m. local time, And uh, this particular DC-10 had logged more than 20,000 hours since it left the assembly line and literally did not have one technical issue. In addition, the plane was being staffed by a top-notch crew. They were considered an A-team crew, if you will. All indications were that this would be a safe, quick, and pleasant flight to Los Angeles. At 2.59 p.m., air traffic control cleared the plane to begin its taxi onto the runway. At 3.02, flight 191 started down the runway. Everything was going exactly as expected until the plane reached about 6,000 feet down the runway. At this point, imagine this. The air traffic controller guy looks out the window, and from the tower, he sees parts of the engine on the port side pylon fly off the airplane. Oh, my gosh. There was a white vapor that came out at the same time. So I'm sorry, they hadn't left the ground at this point? They were just starting to take off. Okay. At this point, the engine in the pylon tore loose and flew up over the mooring and the wing and then crashed on the runway behind it. So the guy gets on the uh, on the radio from the control tower and he asks, American 191, do you want to come back? If so, which runway do you want? There was no reply. 
I mean, even asking it as a question seems kind of silly, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you probably want to come back. Yeah. You lost your, your engine. Might be a good idea. Uh, but there was no, no reply from the aircraft. However, it started to climb normally, with the exception of the left wing just dipping slightly for a moment, but then quickly stabilizing. About 10 seconds later, at 300 feet, just barely off the ground, Flight 191 started to bank left slightly at first, and then very sharply it dipped as the airplane began to lose height. It rolled over on its side and then fell to earth just on the other side of a tree line from from the airport. This is terrifying. The left wingtip was the first thing to hit the ground. Sure. Then there was a massive explosion. I'm guessing because since they had just taken off, they were full of jet fuel. Yeah. Uh, The view from the tower was one of just the plane disappearing behind buildings and treetops being quickly replaced by a giant orange and black fireball that was stories high. It was so big that it swept across the field that it crashed in for about a half a mile. Oh, wow. It actually set an abandoned airplane hangar on fire. Two people on the ground were also killed. The crash was near a mobile home park. All of the passengers and the entire crew died instantly. Did they ever find out why the pilot didn't respond? Why they didn't, the plane didn't say, hey, yeah, we're coming back. Sorry. They don't know exactly, but they did find out that the cause of the accident, it was determined to ultimately be attributed to an engine pylon that had been damaged at the American Airlines maintenance facility during routine maintenance. Um, Apparently, to save time, they would remove the engine and the pylon at the same time. And and, uh, the the manufacturer of the airplane, McDonnell Douglas, said that that was an approved way to do it, but Mm -hmm. that weakened the connection between the two parts and and apparently a crack had formed. And over time, over several flights, it became worse and worse until the point where the engine just fell off. But do we know even at all if the pilot knew that chunks had fallen off of the plane? Yes. Yeah. There was some sort of communication within the cockpit that they they recognized what was going on. Okay. He was able to recover the stability of the plane momentarily. The thought is that probably he was trying to just get it off the ground and stabilize and so he could circle around back and reland the plane, but that didn't happen. Oh. Word is that ever since the crash, a number of ghost stories have surfaced in and around the crash site right outside of of Chicago. According to local police officers, motorists in the area started seeing odd lights in the field where the crash had taken place. Mm -hmm. Just these white orbs bobbing about the field where the plane had come down. They thought that was a bit unusual. The first thought, though, was that maybe these were just ghoulish souvenir hunters, you know, out at night with their flashlights looking for debris that was left over. But they responded to each call. There were many of them. They responded to them very quickly, only to find time and time again, the field was empty, silent, and deserted. No one was ever found, even though patrols would arrive at the scene almost immediately after receiving a report. Mm. This went on for years. There were more unnerving accounts that came from residents that lived in the trailer park that was near to the crash site. Um, Some of these reports came in within hours of the crash. Many residents have claimed to hear they heard knocking and rapping sounds on their doors and windows. Now, coincidentally, there were a number of retired and off-duty police officers and firefighters who happened to live in this mobile home park. 
Um, so some of these people, they've got some credibility within the community. They claimed that when they would open their doors, there would be nobody there. They would hear these sounds, reports of dogs behaving strangely, barking at nothing in particular. This went on for months. Some residents claimed that their doorknobs would turn and rattle. Oh. And they would hear footsteps approaching, clanging up on the metal stairs to the mobile home. That would be very upsetting, yes. And then they looked outside and there'd be nothing there. According to some reports, though, there were people who lived there that actually would open the door and see something there. There were several reports of uh, a person seeing a figure standing there, looking very agitated and confused, um, saying that he had to get his luggage, and then he would just disappear. Another witness saw a person on the porch looking confused and saying that uh, she had to make a connection and then turned around and vanished into the darkness. Because of these strange events, a lot of people just decided to move. Sure. You know? I would be, I'd be, yep. all it would take is a little on my door, you know, yeah. because I'd be expecting ghosts <laughs> after yeah. that. So when these people moved out, the new arrivals would come in, take their place, and they started experiencing things as well. One man was walking his dog one night near the area where Flight 191 went down when he was approached by a teenager who said he needed to make an emergency phone call. The guy with the dog said that uh, the teenager seemed to reek of gasoline, and he also appeared to be smoldering. At first, he thought the guy was just out jogging mm -hmm. and that, you know, he was overheated and because it was a cool night, that steam was just coming off of him from, you know, his perspiration but then he noticed that the clothing looked burned as if he had been on fire oh so he turns to point out a nearby payphone and when he turned back the guy was gone now this i mean i would be concerned about even if it was just a lot of sweat mm. like that's a lot of sweat that's a lot to, to create steam chicago nights are chilly I'm just saying now this was the worst crash of Flight 191. But like I said, there were four other fatal crashes with the uh, same flight number. The first was in 1963. Aero Flight 191 crashed on its final approach at Ashgabat International Airport, killing 12 people. In 1972, Prinair Flight 191 crashed in Puerto Rico, killing five people. In 1985, Delta Airlines Flight 191 crashed while on approach to Dallas-Fort Worth, killing 137 people. Oh in 2006, Comair Flight 191 crashed on takeoff from the wrong runway at Lexington, Kentucky, killing 49 people. Now, these are passenger jets, but there was also an incident of an experimental flight. The X-15 Flight 191 test plane in 1967 broke apart and killed its test pilot. Um, in the most recent incident of a Flight 191 occurrence was in 2012 on JetBlue Flight 191 from JFK to Las Vegas. It was diverted to Amarillo, Texas due to erratic pilot Error. The pilot apparently started ranting about terrorists and Jesus and 9-11, and he was taken out of the cockpit by the co-pilot, and he had to be subdued by the passengers. That would have been scary. Oh, wow. Uh, later, he was admitted into a mental health facility. However, the plane did land safely in this case. The curse of Flight 191. Is it a curse? Is it a coincidence? The amount of accidents with this specific flight number is unprecedented. Uh, most airlines, like I said before, do not use the number 191 anymore. 
And a recent check revealed only two airlines using 191 out of all the major U.S. carriers, and that is uh, United Airline and Spirit Airlines. I wonder if um, the concern with the other airlines who have abandoned flight 191s is not so much that they are superstitious about mm. it, but that they're concerned that the passengers oh, might be. Absolutely. I mean, because now yeah. I'm going to be taking a look at those flight numbers. <laughs> yeah. Normally, I don't care. I don't even care if it's like a four number flight number. If the last three numbers are 191, I'm taking a train. <laughs> and now. That thing in the middle. This thing in the middle, <laughs> the result of a Google search. You know how Google Autofill helps you out sometimes yeah. by saying, here's what other people have searched for. Sometimes what other people have searched for is very upsetting. We start with the phrase, we're the pyramids. And what follows is truly upsetting. Number five, were the pyramids power plants? There is a very strong theory that, yes, they were um, No, there's power not. Plants. There is a yeah. theory, but it yeah. is not a good one. Yeah. Uh, number four, were the pyramids ever underwater? Yes. Yes, they were, right after Atlantis. <laughs> number three, were the pyramids built? That's it. That's the... That's just it. That's it. Okay. That's it. Right. Number two, were the pyramids covered in gold? Well, the capstone was. But, yeah, a little yeah, bit at the top. A little bit at the top. Sure. Right about Blinding, where, where the water line was. It, right, yeah, right, yeah. And number one, were the pyramids built from the top down? Wait, what? Mm. Warning. Repeated use of this podcast may cause enlightenment, queasiness, and or fits of laughter. Discontinue use if rash develops. But send us a photo first. We're into some weird shit around here. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. 
Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We got an email from Matt. Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. I want to get a jingle just for when we get an email from Matt. (laughs) Um, Episode 303, Kat says... Alexa. Oh, no, don't say it. Don't say it. People are getting mad now. We're getting angry emails. Is this another angry email? Um, We're not going to talk about the butt plugs thing anymore. Kat asked the lady of the house, (laughs) let's put it that way, uh, add butt plugs to my shopping list during a butt plug related anecdote. You get a ton of these messages. Of that, I am sure I am no stranger to your show and have chuckled at this many a time. But tonight... the lady of the house pipes up with, you already have butt plugs on your shopping list. And I have no idea when that got added. (laughs) I'm a little worried about the point in my future when my distant relatives are mining historical digital metadata to explore their (laughs) ancestral history, and they're presumably forced to conclude that great-great-great-grandpa Matt had an insatiable hunger for arse-based consumerism. Arse-based consumerism? Yeah, I think that's going to be the title of this episode. (laughs) Thanks, Matt, for naming this episode. (laughs) Love you guys. Matt. Oh, Matt. Yeah. That was delightful. Yeah, we we won't do that ever again. 
Um, as far as you know. You can promise that for yourself. <laughs> Your own self can say that. All right. What you got for me? The land of Punt was an ancient kingdom. And at times, Punta is referred to as the land of God. And the Egyptians left lots of details for us about Punta, this glorious land with a, a wealth and an abundance of goods to share with the Egyptians. Hatshepsut and other pharaohs sent huge expeditions to Punt. And it, as I said, it was called the God's Land or the Red Land because of its red soil. It was prioritized by ancient Egyptians for its resins and gums that were used for incense and ointments. Egyptian traders returned from trips to Punt with ebony and ivory, um, which, you know, are essential for songwriting. <laughs> And uh, also wild animals and gold from the kingdom. Punt was a major trading partner of Egypt's for at least a thousand years. The earliest recorded ancient Egyptian expedition to Punt was organized by Pharaoh Sahuri of the 5th dynasty. That's 25th century BCE. Mm. Um, however, gold from Punt is recorded as having been in Egypt as early as the time of Pharaoh Khufu. And I think because of because of all of the Egyptian documentaries, nighttime we, Egyptian he, documentaries, yeah, yeah. In bed, he built the second of the great pyramids. Yeah, I think uh, Khafra. What is it? Khufu. Khufu. First of the second, one of them. I don't remember. Yeah, and it's con- thought that maybe he was responsible for the Sphinx, but then maybe his son was, or maybe uh, neither of them mm, because right, yeah. of the walkway being uneven or something like that. I don't know. I probably fell asleep. <laughs> um, perhaps the most information regarding Punt comes from Queen Hatshepsut. There was a voyage made to Punt, and they had details of the journey recorded on the walls of her temple. They were called the Voyages of the Divine Land, and they those voyages eventually became routine. So we know a lot about what we got. I say we, I mean Egyptians. I don't know why. I just said we, but we know a lot about what they got um, from their expeditions to Punt, and we know uh, about the riches that they provided and, you know, all of this stuff. But what we don't know is where the hell it is. That's what I was going to ask you. Where is Punt? We don't know, Claire. It may have been bad clams. There's no map, there's no directions, there's no distances or anything else that definitively pinpoints Punt's location. Is it real? Is it a real place or is it like a figurative, is it like... Kind of like their afterlife with the crocodile that will eat your heart if it doesn't weigh the same as a feather? Exactly what I was thinking, yes. (laughs) Well, no. The Book of the Dead. um, It's real. Um, We just, for some reason, haven't found any sort of directional hmm. information. We don't even know what, what country it was in. No. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So, this is according to Nova. The last expedition to Punch that we know of occurred under Ramses III in the 12th dynasty. An ancient papyrus record says that they constructed great transport vessels loaded with limitless goods from Egypt that reached the land of Punt, unaffected by any misfortune, safe and respected. And then they returned safe and respected, but from where? The papyrus doesn't say. Does it say how long it would take to journey there? No. You said they loaded up ships. Yep. 
So clearly it was somewhere on the coast of the Mediterranean. Or along the river of the Nile. Well, maybe. You don't know. Yes, that's true. Scientists have debated its geographic location for more than 150 years, though I love that you're just now trying to like work oh, it I'll out. I'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> like if I knew how long the journey was, I could do the math. You I know, could I'd triangulate do, it. That's right. I could, a la forensic files. That's right, because I watch forensic files. Um, Syria, Sinai, Southern Arabia, Eastern Sudan, Northern Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, all have been suggested, and the experts who are making those suggestions can make really good points. Mm. In the 1960s, Rolf Herzog upset the apple cart when he said, based on a detailed study of the flora and fauna in descriptions of Punt represented in temples, Herzog placed Punt along the upper Nile south of Egypt, specifically uh, between the Atbara River and the confluence of the White and Blue Niles. Hatshepsut's relief appears to contradict that stance, as Kenneth Kitchen pointed out in 1971. Now, in 2005, College of Arts and Sciences Associate Professor of Archaeology, Catherine Bard, made some fascinating archaeological discoveries. Uh, She and the research team uh, coordinated with Egyptologists, unearthing a 4,000-year-old cedar decking and timber and planks and basically uh, the makings of a ship. There were words used that I had to look up that I found meant kind of like a um, dovetail joint. But it wasn't dovetail. <laughs> okay. Um, but I, I learned, and now I can't remember what they're called. Very popular in shipbuilding. <laughs> but anyway, this comes from BU Today. The ship's parts and cargo were found in man-made caves that had been discovered during an excavation in 2004. And that discovery, uh, which included more than 20 wooden cargo boxes believed to have come from the lost loot of Punt, One of the boxes had a hieroglyphic inscription with a royal cartouche painted on it. The hieroglyphics described the contents of the box as the wonderful things of Punt, said Bard. The discovery also included a ton of marine gear, like lots of ropes still wrapped up the way that they would have been wrapped up exactly when they stashed them for marining. Bard's discovery provided persuasive <laughs> and Bard's discovery has provided persuasive evidence that Egyptians traveled great distances by sea. And up until that point, it was kind of just thought, all right, well, you made your way across the desert a lot, but it wasn't understood how seafaring these people really were. Bard believes that Punt was about 800 miles south of her excavation, near what is today Kassala in eastern Sudan. And as I said, that excavation started a real shift in how researchers see Egyptian seaworthiness. Basically, they were a lot more seafaring than we ever had an understanding. I remember seeing on one of those late night Egyptian documentaries that we watched uh, how they conquered one particular area Mm -hmm. along the Mediterranean coast. It was north of where Israel is today by taking apart all of their chariots. Yeah. And shipping them over there mm-hmm. and then reassembling them. Right. And by the time they got to the city that they were going to conquer, uh, everybody had left. <laughs> <laughs> so they got the city, but they yeah. didn't need to bring all those chariots. Well, then at least they had chariots. That's true. You yes. know, mm-hmm. they could use them as tuk-tuks. 
mm, around yep, the city. Sure. I want to get some hot almonds. Let's take a chariot down the way. Now, earlier this year, there was an article from the National Science Foundation which talks about research published in eLife, and that once again demonstrated the tremendous nautical range of Egyptian seafarers. A Dartmouth College-led team of researchers with Egyptologists found this found in this new study uh, by tracing the geographic origins of Egyptian mummified animals where they think Punt might have been. So in researching these mummified animals, uh, they came across a large stash of mummified baboons that come from an area that includes modern-day countries of Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, Djibouti, Somalia, and Yemen, which now provides that new insight into Punt's location. They believe that Mm. these baboons, due to the inscriptions provided in in the temples, came from Punt. And because we know those baboons only lived in these regions, Punt must be in one of these regions. So that at least narrows it down and says, take that, all you other people who thought Egyptians could only sand. (laughs) To me, it makes more sense that it comes from an area along the Mediterranean coast because they would have access to far more ports and goods and trade. And so they would be able to provide more of these riches. Right. And, you know, the closer to water you are, the more likely it is that you're going to have the riches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For the boat times. For the boat times. I can't tell you how many times my mom used to tell me that. All the time. When I was Sitting growing up. in the up. kitchen. Yep. Having a cookie, maybe some corn. And she would say that to me. I don't remember what it was that you just said, but that was what she would say. Yeah. So anyway, that's what we know about where Punt might be. That's fascinating. Thank you. I thought so. You know that I wanted to be, I've always wanted to be an archaeologist. Yeah. Yeah. As a child, I was fascinated with archaeology. And uh, my mom and my dad, both higher education people, they both taught at universities and stuff, thought, great. JG is going to be an archaeologist. Mm This will be fantastic. We're so proud. And they bought me the books. Mm -hmm. They took me on expeditions to witness archaeological digs along the coast of Maine. Yeah. You got a rock polisher? Yes, I I did. I got a rock polisher. I had a microscope. I mean, they they gave me all kinds of uh, educational things when I was a kid. So imagine how proud they are. (laughs) (laughs) Right now. Anyway, fascinating stuff. Thanks for doing the research on that. That's really interesting. Thank you. We did have another email. I I wanted to read this, but I wanted to save it for last because, well, I'm just going to read it. It comes from Nikki. It's a little rough. Yeah. It's a little rough. So... That's why we wanted to save it for last. And if you don't want to hear it, then maybe you don't. Starts out rough, ends up pretty good. So trigger warning for child abuse. First of all, thank you very much for your podcast. You have helped me get through a rough year. Lost an aunt to the virus, and my uh, grandma died just a few days ago, thankfully, peacefully in her sleep. I had an out-of-body experience at age 12, and they say in in this email, trigger warning, uh, the story sucks. I'd been molested by my aunt's boyfriend for months. He threatened my family if I ever told, 
My young brain couldn't cope, so I tried to kill myself with a bottle of Tylenol. I went out of my body, looking down with curiosity, but no real feeling of sadness. I felt free, but then I heard my mom looking at me. I know that sounds weird. It's like I could hear her thoughts, but I knew she wasn't actually looking at my body. I knew all of a sudden how bad she would feel if I died, so I floated back into my body. As you can tell, I'm still alive 33 years later and so grateful I decided to come back. I've done a lot of therapy and EMDR, gotten out of an abusive marriage, and finally accepted that I'm gay and planning to move to Portland, Oregon to be near family and start a new wondrous artistic life this year. I'm so happy now. Please tell your listeners it gets better. Thank you for sharing your wonderful stories and yourselves. You both helped remind me there are so many sweet souls out there. Keep on keeping on. Monkey emoji. I don't really have any words, Nikki, other than um, thank you for sharing that. That's, so glad uh, you stuck around. Yeah. And sure. also, I'm really interested to uh, hear more about your EMDR experience. My therapist suggested that we dive into that a little That's bit. Eye movement desensitization uh, reprocessing. That's what it stands for. I had to look that up. I, you know, it's it's therapy for like post traumatic stress and things of that nature. Yeah, I was going to this therapist, and uh, one week she was like, "Listen, I think it's really time that we we delve into uh, one, uh, you know, all this, <laughs> and uh, two, the." Um, the lack of memory. Like, I have a really hard time remembering most of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, this, I think this is a really good option for you, EMDR. You know, we're going to look into it a little bit, and then I think we should we should really start doing this. And I was like, um, this sounds really interesting and, like, something that I want to learn more about, absolutely. And then I never went back to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I was all like, oh, yeah, that sounds that sounds really good. Cool. All yeah. right. Well, I'll talk to you later then. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> that mm. sounds about right. So you're real brave. Mm. That's yeah. awesome. Good for you. That's real good. good. For you. Again, thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. We uh, we appreciate the company. This has been a crazy freaking year for us all, and uh, you've made it so much easier. And I think that. Um, in many ways, you're our therapy. It's true. <laughs> it really it's is. It's true. Thanks for joining us for this session. Mm -hmm. uh, really appreciate it, you. Remember that time we went to uh, a therapist together and she billed us for the entire uh, session, even though she spent the entire session filling out forms? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that made me feel good. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the next time it was like, what did we talk about last time? And we were like, nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. We did not discuss anything. And then she goes, oh, I forgot to fill out some forms. And we spent uh, half of the next session <laughs> watching her fill out forms. She seemed like a nice lady. She was, I think she was a nice lady. I think just a little scared. She just wasn't for us. No. Any hoozle, we'll see you next time, you guys. <laughs> Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. 
Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Perhaps the most information regarding Punt comes from Queen Hatshepsut. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Hatshepsut. From Queen Hatshepsut. <laughs> from Queen Hatshepsut. Well, that's going to be an Easter egg. No! Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.